This week's show is supported by Cardio Women's Initiative. The Cardio Women's Initiative is an incredible program which provides women founders with mentorship, training, and funding. If your business has an environmental or social impact, find out more and apply now via the link in the show notes. Applications close 30th of June, 2023. Hello and welcome to The Crux, the weekly women's agenda podcast. In today's episode, we look at the fallout for women in many different ways. So we are talking about the ones who are taking the public heat of the PwC mess. We look at the final verdict in the costly year-long Ben Robert Smith trial. Plus, we have an interview with Tracy Spicer on artificial intelligence and her new book, Man Made. Thank you for listening. We are recording this episode of The Crux on the 5th of June, 2023. My name is Angela Priestley, and I am joined by my co-founder and Women's Agenda editor, uh, Tala Lambert. Hello, Tala. How are you? Hey, Ange. I'm very well. How are you? I'm good. Nice and early on a Monday morning. So that's how we roll. (laughs) (laughs) So, but as usual, we do like to start with some wins for women. So what is your win for the past week or so? Uh, my win goes to a post that came from former CEO Christy Carr last week. It is a little bit late for me to talk about this because it did come in a few days ago, but I did think it was a really important message that she had. And it came three weeks after she was ousted from the company that she founded, so Bubs Australia. And the reasoning behind her ousting was that she had failed to comply with reasonable board directions. But essentially, you get the vibe that there's some bad blood in the company, which obviously can happen. But Christy wrote a post on LinkedIn and she talked about how proud and privileged she was to have led the company over the last 18 years. And she talked about the enormous achievements that she had actually you know, gained, including being a female founder of an ASX listed company, which she called a rare breed. It certainly is. And she talked about, you know, the zealous tenacity that she had had to kind of pursue the venture. And she also talked about the legacy that she had left and building a company that she talked about it being more of a a family. But I did want to just say like, so one comment she made, and I think that this is quite key for lots of women pursuing businesses, but she said, you know, you never need to apologize for your passion, your emotion, or your undying grit to succeed. These are your best qualities that will deliver your heartfelt mission and the corporate paradigm needs you. And she said, dare to dream, disrupt and make positive change in the world and the workplace. There will always be bullies who try to bring you down. Even if they win, they do not define you and cannot take away what you have achieved. So I really liked the post. I don't know what went on behind the scenes of Bubs and you said that there may be actually some possibility of her her regaining her leadership within the company and and that's kind of evolved over the last few days. But I just thought that it was a really nice post and it resonated with a lot of people on LinkedIn as well. Yeah, it did. And yeah, I think there could be a bit of a comeback in the works here. (laughs) And this shows, I guess, her influence. And let's remember that Christy Carr also had been called out by President Joe Biden a year or so ago with the US being able to secure this product because when the US was having like a dire shortage of baby formula last year. And so there was this big deal done with this, you know, Australian company and there was President Joe Biden calling out Christy Carr and what she'd done with Bob's Australia. But I saw over the weekend so that uh, Chemist Warehouse founder Jack 
Gantz has kind of joined Christy Carr in this push. They've called it the Save Our Bobs campaign and they've got a heap of investors on board, including a lot of investors in, uh, they said there's over 15,000 Australian Chinese shareholders who are involved because this product has been massive in China also. Um, So it looks like more to see here in a very interesting ASX corporate stoush, as you say. So we shall see. But, you know, tough gig going from that founder role to that CEO role. But uh, she had done that and she'd done that for a number of years and built an incredible company. So, yeah. And I think just Last point, I think it is really hard often for women to kind of sing their own praises and and to really, you know, celebrate what they've done because we like to be self-deprecating and we like to pretend like that we haven't done anything good when we've done things that are really momentous. And, you know, I love the fact that she was just so out there and proud about what she had achieved and really listed that out. And I think it's important that more of us do that, really. Exactly. Yes. What's your win, Ange? Uh, So my win, I've changed it from what we had in our notes from last week, Tyler, but um, I've changed it just based on something that came up on Sunday. So my win is from the Liberal campaign that was launched over the weekend in the Sun-Herald or probably across various Sunday papers over the weekend. Um, So they've launched this campaign called It's Okay to Vote Yes. So obviously referring to the national referendum on The Voice and to recognise Indigenous Australians in the constitution. I know it sounds like a bit of a strange win, but I want to note like how strong the women's leadership is within this campaign and also you know, I mean, I'm sure everyone does as well, but how, you know, we, we look at this opposition and the current state of the Liberal Party, particularly at the national level, and we see a lot of problems and it's sort of falling apart, particularly in terms of the women's vote. But we also know that for the strength of our democracy, it's really important to have a strong opposition. So I'm kind of looking at this and looking at like how there might be a lot of people being turned off by the Liberal Party at the moment if they haven't already been, but particularly due to Liberal leader and opposition leader Peter Dutton's race-based comments on The Voice that he made in Parliament last week, which were pretty difficult to hear. So this is kind of coming out the other side and it's being uh, led by Kate Carnell, who is the former Liberal ACT Chief Minister and head of the Liberals' For Yes campaign, which they're calling this. Lots of women involved in the group of 20 or so, which kind of outnumbers what you'd see in the federal level of women involved. Mm. And a couple of highlights. So Nicola Lauder's in there. Elizabeth Lee, who's the leader of the ACT opposition, so leader of the Liberal Party in the ACT. Elizabeth Lee, special mention also because I believe she's the first person to lead a party and to have a baby while leading the party. And she did that a few months ago. And it's a pretty big win in itself, but that's a little bit of a side note there. And also Tasmanian MP Bridget Archer. And again, special mention to Bridget Archer, who has crossed the floor a number of times. She's shown a lot of courage in her convictions in standing up to things that she doesn't agree with from within her party. And mm. she's going to hold a lot of power in Tasmania, given this is a referendum and given the, the value and the importance of the, the state votes. And she mm. will be really leading a lot in that state there and will be quite critical and key to the outcome later on in the year. Well, her popularity is huge, Bridget Archer. And she must be a bit of a bugbear for Dutton, you would imagine. Mm. But I was looking at a, an op-ed that she and Fiona Martin, who actually was the former candidate for Reid, and they had penned an op-ed around The Voice a couple of months ago and the pursuit in the Liberal Party to bring it to light. And 
you know, they'd said, you know, there are many liberals and former liberals who know in their heart the burning desire to do better, to be better and to walk with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians towards a future that rights the wrongs of the past in a practical and proportionate way. And I do, I think that that is absolutely true. And unfortunately, the noise and the distraction coming from very divisive, politicised people at the top, it's not coming through at the moment. So I think, yeah, absolutely, these kind of campaigns are so important at the moment, this conversation and getting it across to as many Australians as possible, really. Everyone just needs to be as informed as possible about what this legislation means and what changes it will make to the lives of all Australians and particularly for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians. Exactly. Should we go to our first story, Tyler? Yes, let's do it. Um, So the first story today starts with the ongoing PwC mess and the women taking the public scrutiny for it all, shock horror. And you wrote about this last week and I know you've got lots and lots of thoughts, but for anyone who needs a bit of a recap, PwC has been embroiled in a major tax scandal after the firm's former head of international tax, Peter Collins, shared confidential information with colleagues. Uncovered emails show that PwC had advised 14 multinational clients about how they could sidestep the new multinational anti-avoidance law the government was relying on to collect more tax from locally earned profits. So since the leak, nine partners of the firm have stepped down and are yet to be named, and there's believed to be dozens of others who had some knowledge of the emails. And yet at the forefront of PwC's attempts to win back the lost trust of Australians is the acting CEO, Kristen Stubbins, a woman who has really become the face of the public apology and is wading through a lot of mess. And what do you reckon? (laughs) I mean, I have so many thoughts about this, but first of all, I mean, I shouldn't even laugh. Like the whole situation is just horrible and disgusting, like that this has happened. But um, a few things, I mean, you mentioned Kristen Sobbins, who is the acting CEO. And weirdly, I actually happened to walk past her last week. We happened to be near PwC's office. And one thing I just thought at that time was, wow, I wouldn't have even recognised you until this week and now you're acting CEO and now you have the job of being the person who has to issue the public apology, who has to issue the apology to the government, who has to issue the apology to clients and to staff and the 10,000 or so staff at PwC, many of whom have absolutely nothing to do with this but whose morale would be pretty shot to pieces right now on account of, you know, a small number of people who have been involved in something that absolutely should be and, and should horrify the Australian public and uh, should result in this firm having to work really, really hard to rebuild the trust of all of us again. So it is just really telling that a woman is the public face of this mess. I'm going to presume that she has nothing to do with this and that also, I mean, she's likely been put there on account of having nothing to do Clean. with this. Yeah, I mean, you would, you would hope that that's how that they would try to select somebody who is going to help pull the firm out of this. She is acting CEO. PwC in Australia hasn't had a female CEO before, so what a good time to make that uh, glass ceiling shatter and then put a well atop of a glass cliff. But it's also telling, I mean, we saw that two women from the PwC board resigned last week as well and their photos ended up on the papers and we saw who their names were and I can understand why they did resign. They weren't necessarily directly involved in this but involved in the 
ethics and compliance area. Another thing I might note about women is that it's two women who have really been instrumental in bringing this to public attention, and that is uh, Labor Senator Deborah O'Neill and the Green Senator Barbara Pocock. So again, a little cross-party collaboration, which is so good to see. And they are not going to relent on this issue. And, you know, we've got Barbara Pocock there. She's threatening to name the partners. I shouldn't say threatening. I think she was actually about to last week. Name those partners under parliamentary privilege on the idea that, you know, the Australian public should know who they were. And she says, you know, it may be that they happen to have just been on the emails, but even if you're on the emails and you see this happening and you see these suggestions here that maybe it is the time to try and speak up and get it known. But so I guess that the idea is that, you know, just because you are named an email doesn't mean that you're necessarily involved or you were part of, you know, going on and sharing that advice with the 14 US multinationals who I might say, Tala, are probably paying uh, <laughs> possibly, less you know, tax. who knows, less tax than agenda <laughs> Less media. tax than us. <laughs> um, you know, little tiny media company that happens to be based in Australia and can't afford to get the tax advice of a company that also doing the tax advice to the Australian government to determine what it should be. <laughs> doing a little bit of sharesies on that, little bits of information. So what a disgusting mess. Shitstorm. A shitstorm. What a shitstorm. And I don't, anyone, you can go onto PW website and you can go through and have a look at all the partners and you can have a look at like the tax team and you can kind of start to guess which teams might be related to multinational <laughs> tax advice and you can start to see there's one particular gender that is heavily dominated there. Mm. Lots of stuff what going on. Edge? Also, we can also look at the- What's the, the gender? <laughs> it's, it's obviously, you know, women have been at the forefront of the tax accounting industry. <laughs> Just overwhelmingly dominating there, aren't we? No, no. And also, you know, the previous two CEOs of PwC have come from the tax team. The person who was involved, the the one bad egg, which really PwC wanted to push, they wanted to, you know, really pin it all on one person, Peter Collins, he did hold a leadership role in the tax team and he has been deregistered by the Tax Practitioner Board for two years following its finding that he failed to act with integrity as required under his professional ethical and legal obligations. What do you have to do to get uh, deregistered by the Tax Practitioner Board for more than two years? <laughs> That's true, actually. It's a very good point. But in the meantime, the Australian Federal Police is investigating, so that should oh, be good. noted there. So, That's good. Weren't they getting tax advice from PwC? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. It is just a shitstorm. It's hard to see what will, like, I mean, I'd like to think that a proper investigation and proper recourse will, you know, happen from this, but it is just hard to see sometimes because you just know the level of corruption that exists and, you know, how much gets brushed under a carpet. But good on Deborah O'Neill and Barbara Pocock for really kind of holding a gun <laughs> mm. to the heads of every stakeholder that's involved. So let's see how yeah. that one rolls out. Yeah, and, and I think also the wider conversation about the public sector and, and how it's been depleted so much over the past few years with so much of that budget now going to external consultants and what that's done to the public sector and what's that done to people within it and, you know, this need to kind of maybe that we do need a bit of a reshuffle and a rethink and 
that we can bring a lot of this work in-house and it doesn't necessarily need to go to these global firms. Um, I think more of us should understand how much money does go to these global firms. And in saying that, I do want to note that there's, there's so many good people who also do work at these firms as well. And it's a shame. And I think you'd be pretty shitty working at PwC and having nothing to do with this and seeing what's going on and being hardworking and smart and intelligent, worked really hard to get these roles and now that this is going on. So mm. a shout out to all those people. All the do-gooders. We see you. A do-gooder in the most <laughs> positive way. I always feel like that's a bit of a negative word, but <laughs> the most positive way that uh, there's plenty of good people in these firms and you and I would have met plenty of them ourselves and this doesn't yeah. taint everyone the same way, but it is important to find this culture and this behaviour and to fix it and to make sure they are called to account and for the benefit of the government, for the benefit of us, for the benefit of everyone who works there as well. Yeah. Okay, so on to our next story. Completely unrelated, but as a little teeny tiny segue, I might note an AFR piece from 2021 which found that Ben Robert Smith was offered a partnership at PwC, but PwC actually withdrew its talks after the publication of stories that he claimed at the time were defaming him. And he was at that time pursuing millions in damages. We now know the outcome of that trial, so in big dramatic way. So uh, one of the most costly trials in Australian legal and military history. So last Thursday, a judgment was delivered in the defamation trial brought by Ben Robert Smith, VC, Australia's most decorated living soldier and a man accused of murdering unarmed civilians while serving in Afghanistan between 2009 and 2012. So Robert Smith alleged that three Australian newspapers, The Age, the Sydney Morning Herald and the Canberra Times, had defamed him in their reporting, falsely portraying him as a war criminal. But after 101 days of trial, Justice Anthony Basanko ruled that on the balance of probabilities, Robert Smith had murdered unarmed civilians while serving in Afghanistan. He lost his defamation case and he later quickly resigned from his uh, rather cushy GM role at Seven Queensland. And the newspaper's defence also had accused him of ordering subordinates to execute prisoners, of bullying, of assaulting comrades and committing domestic violence against a woman he was having an affair with. I mean, I feel last Thursday was a great day for journalism and it was an important day as well for us to kind of reflect on this and to understand what had happened here and to learn a little bit more about it. This is a civil case. Mm. It's not a criminal case. And a reminder that Ben Robert Smith was actually the plaintiff in this case. Uh, So he brought this defamation case on, makes you sort of wonder what would have happened if he kind of left it. I guess he was aiming to pursue the defense of his reputation. And in this case, it has not gone well. Mm. Tala. That is perhaps an understatement. On the balance of probabilities, Ben Robert Smith, not such a good guy. Um, And I I agree with you. I think it was a really important day for journalism. I do just want to note it would be hilarious if it wasn't just so disgusting and, you know, just what the hell is Seven still thinking. But um, at Seven West Media's annual general meeting, this was prior to the trial, but Stokes has said things post the trial as well. But Kerry Stokes had said, Ben Robert Smith is innocent and deserves legal representation and that scumbag journalist should be held to account uh, and quote me on that. 
Um, we are quoting you on that now, Kerry Stokes. But, you know, even in, you know, recent days after this trial has ended, after the judgment has been that, you know, on the balance of probabilities, Ben Robert Smith did commit these crimes, Stokes said, he had not spoken to Robert Smith, but the judgment does not accord with the man I know. I know this will be particularly hard for Ben, who has always maintained his innocence, said Stokes after the verdict, um, that his fellow soldiers have disagreed with each other. This outcome will be the source of additional grief. The additional grief should maybe be, you know, considered for the victims of the crimes and I just think to place any kind of anecdotal evidence on this matter after a very, very detailed trial that took 101 days, cost $25 million plus to then come out and, and say that, you know, that it doesn't accord with the man you know. Well, no one really cares yeah. the man you know was like. This is what the law has judged him for. And Kerry Stokes, like I don't think he was there either, like uh Pretty sure he wasn't there. So, I mean, that's what the argument is. Well, you've never been in war. Like, how could, and I'm like, well, were the witnesses in this former SAS members who are giving this evidence? Like, multiple of them. Like, so, and you know, he's saying that they're disagreeing with each other. Like, maybe there was some disagreements on some aspects of part of the evidence, but like, we're still talking about people who were there and saw, like, and you know, it was shocking and horrific things that, like, I, we find it even difficult to talk about and these were people who had I mean I've seen the journalists say this as well like they had families and they had wives and they were humans as much as everyone else like how can we I I know yeah so I, I don't know where to go with this it's just like it's a sad day for everyone it's a sad day in terms of and I think you know I am also thinking about those SAS members and I'm thinking about like why Ben Robert Smith couldn't be in court on the one day that the uh, judgment was delivered when he could be in court every other day. And just, you know, that sometimes we do build up these heroes and these figures and we build them up to national prominence and we put them on pedestals and sometimes they're not the right people to be there. And that is certainly the case here. Yeah, and we can have a reckoning and we can think back on that and that's okay. I mean, it was good to see Bruce Lerman's interview on the Seven Network last night as well. So, well, I mean, yeah, we speaking of questionable change. unethical decisions that Seven is making, you know, yeah, that's an interesting one at the moment. I mean, I just don't even know. There must be a lot of really good people that are working for Seven, but how do you reconcile what the chairperson believes and what they're prepared to give coverage to. I just think it's so out of touch. It like beggars belief, to be honest. It really is so behind the times. So, and I might just jump quickly to my interview this week with Tracy Spicer, who is a very prominent Australian journalist. I'm sure most of our listeners would be very familiar with um, Tracy and the work that she has done, but she has just done some more amazing work in the form of a new book called Man Made, and it's looking at the impact of AI, which is, you know, very topical right now, but particularly with a really important gender lens on it and how we need to look at AI and how it's being developed and produced and what that will mean and how it could embed you know, misogyny of the past. So I had a really great conversation with Tracy, which we will jump into right now. Tracy, congratulations on the release of Man Made. 
can you share a bit of an overview with us and what compelled you to write this? I know there may have been a slight epiphany with uh, something that your son said to you. Thank you for having me on the show. Yes, about seven years ago, our then 11-year-old son turned around to me while I was making breakfast and said, Mum, I want a robot slave. (laughs) I said, what are you talking about, darling? Anyway, against our better judgment as parents, he'd been watching South Park and the very naughty boy Cartman had an Amazon Alexa, which he was ordering around like he was some kind of colonial overlord in the most (laughs) offensive language. And I had this epiphany that oh my goodness, this terrible idea about women and girls being servile like in the 1950s is being embedded into the technologies that our children are using right now. And as you know, they pick up messages from the mass media and what they see around them every day. So that gave me the idea of writing a book about how the bias of the past is being embedded in the future and what we can all do about it. Mm. I love a bit of finger pointing, just ask my partner, and you say yourself (laughs) that the mission was a bit of a whodunit uh, with this. So who's ultimately to blame for the chaos of AI and where we're heading with it? Yes, when I started writing it, I thought, A, no one's going to be interested in a book about AI. Well, fortunately, that's become a talking point now, which is great. But B, technology frightens people. It frightened me when I started researching it. So I wrote the book in an engaging way, in a humorous way to start a conversation about it within the broader community, but also wrote it a little bit like a whodunit because we all want to know who's responsible. And at the end of the day, I decided that, yes, big tech is the new big tobacco. Some of them have got profit margins larger than the GDPs of nation states, and they operate unfettered. There's very little regulation around artificial intelligence, particularly in America, because they love the free market and whatnot. And so the power is collected in the hands of a very small group of predominantly young white men in Silicon Valley, and their power is disproportionate to the rest of society, especially given the fact that they hold the future of humanity in their hands. So they're the first people responsible. Secondly, it's governments for not keeping up with understanding technology, and that's part of a lack of diversity that makes up our legislature. There aren't a lot of young people, and so older people who are in politics might think, oh, gosh, I don't really understand this, so I don't have the capacity to be able to legislate. But ultimately, and this was a really difficult finding, the responsibility lies with us because we have a lot of power in our hip pockets. We can choose to support these tech companies or we can choose to boycott them. For example, we can catch a Sheba, a female-run transport company, instead of an Uber. We can change the voice of Siri from female to male. Or we can simply learn a bit more about artificial intelligence in the everyday, play with chat GPT, see where the biases lie and teach the robots to be better. Mm. That's a hard pill to swallow, I'm sure, for a lot of people. How do we mitigate some of the looming doom of an AI-heavy world and especially stop intersectional bias being built into the machines that will define our future? One of the biggest problems that's not being talked about enough in society is something called technology-facilitated abuse. It's also called tech-facilitated coercive control. With the proliferation of smart home technology, 
which is generally set up by men because they tend to be more comfortable with technology because the IT sector is full of blokes, let's face it. The blokes know the passwords, they know how to operate the technology, and there are countless cases of a relationship breakup where perhaps the the fellow moves out of the home and the woman stays in the home and all of a sudden she realises the house is a bit like the Amityville Horror, that old movie, where the air conditioning's going hot and then cold, Siri is recording what she's saying and it's going back to her ex-partner, so Siri's kind of spying on her. The lights are going on and off in the middle of the night and there's a lot of this happening. So I've spoken to women's refuges and people working in this space all around Australia and they say in almost 99% of cases, technology is involved in domestic and family violence these days. Things like people being stalked, with those Apple Air tags because we've got GPSs on us the whole time an ex-partner could know wherever we are. Um, So there's a lot of really scary stuff like that happening and the way to mitigate that is A, education, and B, we forget that we live in a democracy and we can talk to our local members about this to agitate and join together for grassroots change. The other big area that's not talked about enough is deep fakes. We've heard about the fake Barack Obama, the fake Donald Trump, and we know that that's a threat to democracy because it is so real. It's very hard to tell fake news from real news these days. A lot's been spoken about that, but not about deep fake in pornography. You can get a free AI app that can transpose the head or the body of any woman online into a pornographic video or image and nobody can tell the difference and there's very little legislation to prevent that. Mm. We've talked a little bit and you've alluded a lot to the poor kind of response from government so far. Why do you think that that reluctance exists? I know you mentioned government diversity and and, um, age being a factor, but do you think it also comes down to the fact that they ultimately feel powerless? It's classic late stage capitalism. We're in the middle of an AI arms race at the moment and the people who are going to suffer the most are women and those in marginalised communities. AI is saving companies a fortune at the moment at a time when they're trying to recover from a near recession after a global pandemic. And so governments are frightened of restricting the potential for AI to lift the globe out of this economic malaise. And that's one of the big reasons why they don't want to put any kind of restrictions on it. But what they're doing is kicking the can down the road. They're saying, we're we're willing to watch the most vulnerable suffer. We'll fix this down the track, but we want to make a lot of money first. I mean, a really good example of how people are suffering at the moment is the algorithms being used if you apply for a job or if you apply for a home loan or even if you're going to be offered a ventilator in hospital when you're on your deathbed. Because the data sets being used to build these algorithms are from the past, there are historical biases built into them. So if you apply for a job as a woman or a person with a disability or a person of colour, you're much less likely to get the job. The algorithm will just chuck out your application. Same with the home loan. The former Human Rights Commissioner, Ed Santo, did a fantastic three-year review of this kind of process, the banks using these algorithms. And he said, it's like reawakening a zombie. You know, the decision-making is like it's in the head of someone from the 1950s or 60s. 
And it's the same if you want a ventilator in hospital. I'm 55. If it was a choice between me getting the ventilator so I survive and someone who's 30, they'll give it to the 30-year-old. So people are suffering now. People could die now. But governments are not wanting to make the decision because of the almighty dollar. It's as simple as that. Mm. You said that writing this book changed your feminism forever. Um, How so? It really did because if you look at the history of feminism, there's always wonderful activists and advocates joining together in the grassroots, which is what creates global change. We know that historically. But what I learned after interviewing a lot of incredible technologists and academics around the world is that there's a genuine fear that we will not only stagnate between these waves of feminism, we will go backwards. It will stop progress in its tracks. Dr Joy Bullamweeny from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, one of the greatest advocates, she started the Algorithmic Justice League, which is the best name for a lobby group ever, (laughs) said that she fears uh, that we will erode the gains of the civil rights movements in the 1960s and 70s. That's how much she's concerned about it. Because when you look at intersectional harms, there was a a soap dispenser that was distributed in Marriott hotels around the world a couple of years ago, and a Nigerian tech worker put his hands under it. It didn't work, but it worked for a white piece of paper or white hands. (laughs) Now, that kind of technology that didn't recognise black hands is being embedded into self-driving cars, which will be all over our roads in the next five to ten years. And if the car comes up to a pedestrian crossing and sees a white person, it will stop. If it sees a person of colour, it could run them over and kill them. So this is why it's changed my feminism forever, because I fear that not only will we go backwards, those intersectional harms will be even more important to talk about and to mitigate before it gets worse. Mm. Mm. One last question from me, um, and it really goes to to what you are hoping to come out of this. You know, man-made speaks to an important conversation around igniting change. What are you hoping the response will be and, and what can people do on an individual basis and on a, social, a societal one? to get things right? I'm hoping to give people the understanding and the tools to stand up and say enough, to push back against the powerful vested interests that are trying to make an awful lot of money for a handful of people worldwide. Education is always the first step towards lasting change. In your homes, you can talk to children or friends or people in the local community about what they can do with their smart home technology, you know, changing the voice of Siri to to mail, for example, Uh, even looking at smart home technology that can help us. For example, I lived with a dynamic disability last year. I, I was unable to stand up and spent most of last year either in bed or a wheelchair. And so AI in the home can be tremendously helpful mm-hmm. for people with disabilities. But we need to have inclusive design built in from the get-go. So we need to talk about 
increasing diversity and inclusion in the broader tech sector, but specifically AI and machine learning, because it's advancing so quickly beyond regulation and legislation. Mm. In the workplace, ask your employer, do we have audits on our algorithms for bias? Because very few companies do it and it's starting to be mandated around the world. Mm. And more broadly, whenever there's a conversation in the media, which there is a lot these days about ChatGPT or (laughs) AI or MidJourney, the image generation app, get engaged in the conversation, have your say, have a play with it. A friend of mine played with ChatGPT the other day. She said, Tell, she said, write me a story about an engineer and a childcare worker. Every single time she asked it that, the engineer was male and the childcare worker was female. Mm. And after about nine or ten times, uh, she said to ChatGPT, do you realise you're biased? And the robot said, yes, you have taught me that and I will try better. So <laughs> we can work with the robots to ChatGPT is showing more self-reflection than most of our politicians. That's exactly <laughs> right. That is hilarious. So ultimately my message is we can work with this technology rather than sitting back passively and allowing it to be our masters. Mm-hmm. Tracy, thank you so much for sharing your insights and I encourage everyone to get their hands on Man Made and to listen to this interview. Um, thanks again. Thanks so much, Tala. So thank you so much to Tracy for that interview. I think Man Made sounds unreal. I've read quite a lot of it and and I would encourage everyone to go and pick it up, especially, you know, as I said, it is a hugely topical area. It's one that we're seriously engaged with and we are reporting on quite a lot over Women's Agenda. And, you know, I think that there are a lot of gaps in AI and I know that you feel exactly the same, that we are not paying close enough attention to at the moment and Tracy alludes to quite a lot of that in her book. Yeah, I mean, I was going to make this, I guess, my final thought and I won't be long on it. But uh, so I haven't read Tracy's book yet, so I definitely will be reading it because I'm fascinated to learn more. And I know that that book has been in the works for for quite a few years and it's come into this uh, real moment right now, like it is a really perfectly timed release on this book right now. And I've obviously got concerns in terms of the bias being embedded in AI. We should all be having concerns about that. I think that my concerns would be, in addition to some of these things, is the pace of AI development that we're seeing right now and who is leading these companies and who is making the decisions regarding ethics of this AI and and who's making decisions around regulation of AI as well. And if we can actually step up the pace to be able to put in some frameworks around the ethics of this and regulation and what is okay and what's not going to be okay from what is coming out of these research labs. And we know that there's been you know, letters out there calling for a uh, pause, as they put it. We know that prominent people, including the so-called godfather of AI from Google recently, quit that post and come out and start really trying to promote his concerns. So we're even seeing, you know, Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI from ChatGPT, and he's out there saying, hey, come and regulate us. He's actually expressing his concerns about this as well. So Mm. I think that, you know, we need to be thinking about the embedded gender bias and also the embedded leadership and who is controlling this and who we feel comfortable kind of having a huge say on our future. So it's unorthodox, like, oligarchy in charge at the moment isn't it like no one knows what's going on there's no yeah there's literally no democracy behind it and I agree I mean 
it's probably an issue that I've become more in touch with since talking to you because I know it is, you know, something that you've been deeply concerned about for such a long time. But when you do think about the repercussions of that and what it could mean for the future of the world, it is pretty daunting. So, yeah, I think maybe just if everyone uh, had a collective moment of not wanting to let that slide, that would be good. Okay, so on those positive thoughts, get out there and learn more about AI. Go and read Tracy's book and go and have a read up on all the things that are going on right now and how fast things are moving and who is in charge. A reminder, you can catch up on all the stories that we have discussed today and much more on our website, womensagenda.com.au, where you can also subscribe to our daily update and we can let you know what is happening as it's happening around lunchtime each day. So... Thank you for listening. Thank you, Tyler, and thank you, Alison. 